Lord, we come to You now, Lord, in Christ. And truly, God, You have become everything to us through the Gospel, Lord. God, we worship You today as the speaking God, Lord. That You have given Your people Your Word. That You have not hidden Yourself, Lord. In grace and mercy, God, You have revealed Yourself. And we honor You today as the God of providence. That You are the God who has brought us to this place, Lord. In our lives and this place today in Your Word. And God, we want to bow to You today, Lord. And we want to ask You to speak, Lord. Not as though You have not already spoken, But Lord, we ask for help from heaven today. Lord, we know that unless you bless your people, unless you help us, unless you open our eyes and ears, we won't understand. We won't behold glory today. And God, we so need you, Lord. God, we so need to be encouraged in the gospel today. We need to see our Savior, Lord. And you're a good father. And we come to you today as your children adopted through the gospel. And we ask God that you would give us our portion, Lord. That you would sustain our souls today. That you would use this time for holy purposes. And the building up of your church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. We've been in the book of Genesis. Together in the last several weeks, we've been reminded of the grace of God. And we've been zoned in in recent weeks on the transforming grace of God in the lives of the brothers of Joseph. And even last week, we zoned in especially on the transformation that we saw in Joseph's brother Judah. That this wicked man was transformed by the grace of God. The same man who was willing to earlier in his life sell his brother into slavery. At the end of Genesis chapter 44, we see a transformed man that's begging to become his brother Benjamin's substitute slave. This is the grace of God in the lives of this chosen family. We're going to zone in more today on the grace of God. The reconciling grace of God does more than transform these brothers. We're going to see that the grace of God begins to reconcile this whole family together. We left Genesis 44 right in the middle of a narrative. And this impassioned plea, this emotional plea from Judah that he could take the place of his bound brother Joseph and we saw Judah plea before the exalted ruler of Egypt and today we're going to turn the corner we're going to see Joseph's response to that passion plea of Judah so we're jumping right in the middle of this narrative this morning in Genesis chapter 45 so let's read our text together this is God's word to Grace Community Church this morning Genesis 45 Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. And he cried, make everyone go out from me. 
And so no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. Verse 4, And Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near, and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years. And there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth. And to keep alive for you many survivors. So, it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh, and Lord of all his house, and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen. And you shall be near me. You and your children and your children's children. And your flocks and your herds and all that you have. And there I will provide for you. For there are yet five years of famine to come. So that you and your household... And all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see and the eyes of your brother Benjamin see that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and of all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. And then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and he, and he wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck and he kissed all of his brothers and he wept upon them. And after that, his brothers talked with him. And when the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have come. It pleased Pharaoh and his servants. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, say to your brothers, do this, load your beast And go back to the land of Canaan and take your father and your households and come to me and I will give to you the best of the land of Egypt and you shall eat the fat of the land. And you, Joseph, are commanded to say, do this, take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives and bring your father and come. Have no concern for your goods, for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. Verse 21, the sons of Israel did so, and Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh and gave them provisions for the journey to each 
and all of them he gave a change of clothes. But to Benjamin he gave 300 shekels of silver and five changes of clothes. To his father he sent as follows, ten donkeys loaded with good things of Egypt, and ten female donkeys loaded with grain and bread and provision for his father on the journey. And then he sent his brothers away, and they departed. And he said to them, Do not quarrel on the way. Verse 25, And so they went up out of Egypt, and they came to the land of Canaan, to their father Jacob. And they told him, Joseph is still alive, and he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb, for he, he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. This is the word of God to Grace Community Church this morning. Now that context at the end of Genesis 44 reminds us that this is a response Joseph is responding in chapter 45 to this impassioned plea, specifically from Judah. And what that means is that what provokes Joseph's response in this chapter is he is an eyewitness to the fruits of repentance in the lives of the brothers who have greatly sinned against him. And so the same brothers that he saw cast him into a pit... He, he, he begins to see the grace of God transform these wicked brothers. And the text tells us that it's too much for Joseph to take in. Beginning in verse 1, we are told that Joseph loses control of himself. He loses control of himself. In verse 2, he begins to weep loudly. Now this is a grown man. He's about 39 years old at this point in the narrative. And he's weeping loudly. In fact, he's weeping so loudly that everyone in the house can hear him grieving and weeping. Grown man weeping uncontrollably. Joseph is overwhelmed by what he's seeing in the lives of of his brothers. He, he's reminded of the pain of sin, but side by side, he's seeing the fruits of their transformation. He's overwhelmed. He loses control. And the Bible tells us that he cannot hold his secret in any longer. He's been hiding his identity from his brothers up to this point. They don't know who he is, but in the midst of this emotional turmoil, he can no longer hold it in. And in verse 3, he makes himself known to his brothers. And he says, I am Joseph. I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? And I want you to imagine from the position of these brothers, 
of what these three words did to their conscience as they stand before the Lord of all of Egypt and they hear Him say, I am Joseph. And then He fills it in. The one whom you sold, your brother whom you sold. And the text tells us that they're speechless before this Egyptian ruler. And I want you to try to get in their mind this morning. How could this be? How could this be? That the little 17 year old boy that these wicked men cast into the pit and then trafficked into slavery, not only would he live, but that Joseph would become the man of power in Egypt, the Lord of the land of Egypt. You see, these men thought they would never see their little brother again. They thought they would never lay eyes on Joseph again, much less in these circumstances. Okay? That if they imagined that they ever saw him again, they would imagine that they would see Joseph the slave, the one that they trafficked into slavery. But instead, they stand before, 22 years later, this man of power in Egypt. And the human conscience says, how can this be? How can it be that this little boy would become this man of power? And that's exactly what Joseph is in this narrative. He's the man of power. He's the man of authority. Look down in verse 8. And we have a threefold description of how much authority Joseph has been given in the land of Egypt. First, we're told that he has been made a father to Pharaoh. Now, I want you to understand this, okay? Pharaoh is more than the most powerful ruler in the world at this particular time. He is worshipped as the personification of the Egyptian god Ra. And to be said to be a father of Pharaoh would be that you are in the position of the wisdom, the trusted counselor, the one to whom Pharaoh runs to as his own father. And this is the, the position that Joseph has been exalted to in Egypt, that he would become even a father to Pharaoh. The second description tells us that, that Joseph is made Lord of the house of Pharaoh. The man who is a ruler. Okay, This is not our political context. Of uh, you know. Vote the, vote the president in. Um, democratic uh, political systems. This is absolute and total monarchy. And Joseph is said to be the lord of the household of Pharaoh. He's the man of power. And that final description and verse 8 tells us that he's a ruler in the land of Egypt. He is a royal figure. He's a prince. He is second in command under the Egyptian ruler. And so the narrative has come full circle at this point. Okay? Little Joseph, who was cast into the pit in Genesis 37, is now lord of the land of Egypt. The little boy is now lord of the land of Egypt. And these brothers who sold him into slavery, they now stand before Joseph 
as powerless before Him and guilty before Him. And so I want you to try to imagine this tension. Okay? Try to imagine this tension. When this exalted ruler, the one you sold into slavery, says this in verse 4. Joseph says, come near to me. I am your brother whom you sold into Egypt. And I want you to imagine the trembling in that moment. What in the world is about to happen? Powerless and guilty before him. Joseph has the power of life and death in Egypt because he's the one that gets to distribute the, bre- the bread and the grain and famine. And they're summoned to approach him and they're reminded that they are the ones who sold Joseph into slavery. And so this is a shocking revelation of the identity of this Egyptian ruler And the brothers at this point, they're dumbfounded, they're shocked, they're dismayed at the presence of Joseph. And if the revelation of Joseph's identity was shocking to them, the next thing that happens, it goes even further. It's even more shocking. And what begins to happen in Genesis 45 verse 5 is Joseph begins to express his heart to the ones who have sinned against him. And something happens in verse 5 that's more than, not less than, Joseph expressing forgiveness to his brothers. He does that. But I want you to notice he does more than that in this text. He actually leans in and begins to comfort the ones who trafficked him into slavery. Verse 5. And now, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. Now, I want you to imagine how amazing that is. I want you to imagine how amazing that is. Because you would think that if you traffic someone into slavery, the exact appropriate response is what? That you would be distressed. That you would be angry at yourself for what you've done. And yet Joseph leans in in this text with the comforts of grace. Do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves because you sold me here. And so what we have in this chapter is this man of power extends tremendous tenderness to the ones he could crush. He extends to them tender grace and even encouragement. And in verse 5, he explains the perspective, the mindset that has brought him to this place of not only forgiveness, but that he would encourage these sinful brothers to be no longer distressed because of their sin. Now, what is this mindset that produces reconciliation like this? What is it? What is the secret to this tenderness of this forgiveness? And Joseph tells us his mindset, his perspective in verse 5. Three words. God sent me. God sent 
me. In fact, he says this three times in this narrative. Verse 5, God sent me. Verse 7, God sent me. And again in verse 8, he says, It was not you who sent me here, but God. Repetition in the passage. Joseph is ramming this in. He wants his brothers to understand this. We need to understand this. This is the mindset that produced this reconciliation, this tender response. God sent me. And we have these two realities side by side in this passage. In verse 5, you sold me. And that's one perspective of reality. And then side by side with that, Joseph says, but God sent me. You sold me, but God sent me. We have the human responsibility for what happened to Joseph. You sold me. And yet we have the sovereign God working in the life of Joseph in the exact same events. Human responsibility, divine sovereignty. You sold me, God sent me. And the mindset where Joseph has landed in his life is that the ultimate reason that he's found himself in Egypt is not because of what his brothers have done to him, as wicked as that is, but he's landed that the ultimate cause of his suffering and therefore his exaltation is God sent him here. His sovereign God has sent him here for this very reason, for this very moment. This is the same thing Joseph says later in the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 50 Verse 20, he tells his brothers again, he says, You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Those evil things that the brothers did, they meant it for evil to Joseph, but God meant those same things in his life for good. And we have a man landing If these two things wrestle together, Joseph says divine sovereignty wins. Yes, you are guilty, but God is the one who sent me here. God is the one who sent me here. Ultimately, Joseph saw God as the one orchestrating his betrayal by his brothers and his exaltation In the land of Egypt. And that means that Joseph got to a place in his theology and in his life where he confessed that everything that had happened to him up to this point was ultimately the work of God. God sent me here. Think about everything that comes under that banner. The casting into the pit. Joseph says, God sent me there. The ripping off of that favored garment. God did that. God sent me here. His brother's sitting and having a meal while he screamed and asked for deliverance. Joseph said, yep, God did that. The trafficking to the slave traders. Joseph says, God sent me here. The coming into the house of Potiphar. Joseph says, yep, God sent me there. Into slavery. 
The false charges that were brought against Joseph by the wife of Potiphar. Joseph says, God is the one who sent me here. All of that was meant for evil, but God meant those things for good. Joseph lands in an Egyptian prison cell. He spends several years of his life rotting away in prison. And the place where he got in his life and his theology is God sent me here. God sent me here. Yes, a lot of people had done him wrong, but the sovereign God had sent Joseph into suffering. For the purposes of exalting Joseph as a savior and a deliverer in Egypt. So in verse 5, he leans in and he says, he shares this perspective with his guilty brothers. And he says, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. Now, these words are not meant to make the brothers feel less guilty about what they've done. That's not the point here. I want you to notice that Joseph never says, hey, you trafficked me into Egypt. You know, that's no big deal. Water under the bridge. He never says that. Okay, He's not downplaying their sin. He's not downplaying their responsibility at all. But what these words are meant to do in the life and in the conscience of his brothers is he's trying to awaken them to God's plan of salvation, that through their sin, Joseph was sent to preserve life. And that meant that these words were were aimed to comfort these sinful brothers with the grace of God. Yes, your sin is real. Yes, it's wicked. But it's not the only thing to account for. Look and behold the grace of God, the powerful grace of God. And what Joseph longed for his brothers to see is the same thing that Joseph saw was that the goodness of God was overruling their sin. This is his perspective. The sovereign God had sent him to Egypt for the purposes of salvation. And Joseph is trying to awaken his sinful brothers to the grace of God. And that's the the, the theme that swallows up this, this whole chapter. This is what produces this beautiful reconciliation in this whole family is the grace of God. This perspective that the grace of God has overruled and overpowered human sin. This is the foundation, not only in this chapter of Scripture of reconciliation, grace It's the foundation for any meaningful reconciliation in the history of the world. The grace of God that overrules sin. This is a beautiful truth. Beautiful truth. We're going to come back to this theme as we close this morning of the grace of God. The goodness of God that overrules wicked sin. But I want us to quickly move through the rest of this story. I want you to notice... That as the brothers stand dismayed before Joseph, after he reveals himself, the very first thing that he says after he says, I am Joseph, is he says, is my father still alive? 
This is the beloved son of the father. He hasn't seen his daddy that he loves in 22 years. And he longs to see his daddy, the beloved son of Jacob. And so the text immediately goes into this this invitation in verse 9 that Joseph, he sends the brothers with haste immediately to bring Jacob from Canaan down into the land of Egypt. Verse 13, he says this, You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and of all that you have seen Hurry and bring my father down here to me. And so Joseph wants the father to come to him. And not only that, he wants the father's children, Jacob's children, Jacob's grandchildren. Verse 10, all that Jacob has. Joseph invites them to come to dwell in the land of Goshen. And then he says this in verse 11. I will provide for you there. He's going to provide for this family. He's going to be the savior figure for the chosen family. He's going to be the deliverer in the midst of famine. He's going to sustain the life of the family of Jacob. And these dreams are coming full circle that Joseph had. He was going to be exalted to a place of prominence above his family. And so he says there's five years of famine left. Come and dwell in the land of Goshen and I will provide for you. And as this is happening, this reconciliation with the brothers, the new, apparently this news makes it to Pharaoh's palace, beginning in verse 16. And Pharaoh hears about the news of Joseph's brothers coming into Egypt. And the king of Egypt extends an invitation of hospitality to the chosen family. Listen to it. In verse 18, Pharaoh says, Come to me, and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt, and you shall eat the fat of the land. Now I want you to contrast this morning what the brothers deserve to get when they arrived in Egypt versus what they actually received when they arrived in Egypt. This is grace upon grace. And this reconciliation with Joseph has spilled over into Pharaoh, uh, favor from Pharaoh himself. And what this is, this is a vivid illustration of the power of God to move human hearts, even rulers of nations. This is, this is how the Lord is described in Proverbs 21, verse 1. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and He turns it wherever He wills. And that's exactly what God did to these wicked men. He turns the, most, the heart of the most powerful man in the land, and He turns that heart with favor towards these brothers. And what we have here is an open invitation that the family of Jacob is to come And be the honored guest of Egypt. The fat of the land is before you. The invitation comes from the king of Egypt himself. And then we have all these provisions described. Wagons, silver, grain, clothing. 
All these are symbols of the grace and the reconciliation that these wicked, sinful men go down into Egypt and they receive grace and favor because of the kindness of Joseph. We're told in verse 25 that these brothers, they carry these provisions. They carry this news of Joseph is still alive. They carry that down into the land of Canaan. And initially, when they tell Jacob, the text tells us that the news is too good to believe. That his uh, son, his, his beloved son, whom he thought was dead for 22 years, is in fact alive. Verse 26 says, His heart became numb, for he did not believe them. But the brothers persisted with this evidence, the grace of God. They shared the words of Joseph. They told the father all the honor that Joseph had received in Egypt. And as the brothers persisted, the kindness of God overwhelmed the heart of this old man. And we see him respond in thanksgiving to God with these three words. In verse 28, Jacob says, it is enough. It is enough. The Lord has blessed him. The Lord has been kind to him. He never thought he would see this day, but he's going to see Joseph before he dies. And so we have this chapter, several different layers of this beautiful, reconciling grace. Grace that brings these brothers together. Grace that secures favor from the Egyptian king. And grace that restores an estranged father and an estranged son. The grace of God is all over this passage. And I want us to zone in this morning on this theme of grace. On this theme of the grace of God. One of the things that Joseph tells his brothers in verse 5 is that God sent me. God sent me. This is what we talked about just a moment ago. But what I want us to, to notice this morning is that God sent Joseph for a reason. God sent him for a reason. He was sent on a rescue mission to save his sinful brothers. So I want you to notice this, this repetition in the text beginning in verse 5, we are told that Joseph is sent by God to preserve life. To preserve life. And then in verse 7, he says it again, that he was sent by God to preserve a remnant on the earth. He says it again, sent by God, verse 7, to keep alive many survivors. Life, survivors, rescue mission. That God just didn't send Joseph into this suffering for pointless reasons. He was sent on a rescue mission to save. And specifically what he says in verse 7 was Joseph's job, Joseph's mission was to secure a remnant for this chosen family. A remnant for the twelve sons of Jacob. He was the one sent by God to make sure that the salvation promises are carried forward past the famine. And I want you to understand this. 
This severe famine hits the land of Egypt and then the land of Canaan. And if the chosen family dies in famine, we also have to bury the promises of God for salvation for all the nations. And so Joseph is the Savior figure. He's the one who is sent ahead of these 12 sons of Jacob to secure that remnant. That's the language of he was the one to secure their descendants, the descendants of these 12 men, the sons of Jacob. And we're told as the Old Testament progresses that these sons of Jacob, this family goes down into Egypt and they begin to multiply by the grace of God. And all of a sudden, over the period of several hundred years, this family multiplies into this mighty nation in Egypt. It just so happens that this nation named Israel is the very nation that God has set apart to bring forth Messiah, the one who is to bring salvation to all the nations of the earth. This is Joseph's mission. He's sent to save the brothers so that the brothers could produce a remnant, so that the remnant could produce the Messiah, so that the Messiah could bless all the nations of the earth. He's a savior figure. And in this way, we've mentioned this many times, Joseph is a type of Jesus Christ. He was sent to save. He was sent on a rescue mission. Joseph saved his people from starvation in the Genesis narrative. And we want to say that's good. That's good that the chosen family didn't die in the Egyptian famine. But we want to remember how this typology works. That this is foreshadowing this true and better deliverer. This true and better rescue mission. This true and better Savior who would come and save His people. Not from starvation, but He would save His people from their sins. He would provide eternal salvation from sin. Joseph was good. He was a good deliverer. He kept his people alive just long enough so a remnant could be produced. Jesus is better. Call his name Jesus, for he will come and save his people from their sins. And so this rescue mission that Joseph is sent on foreshadows the rescue mission of Jesus Christ. He's the true and better Joseph. The righteous, suffering, deliverer. Now I want you to think about this passage. And what this passage means for you. And I want you um, to be aware that a lot of times what's presented as the moral uh, response, the moral of the Genesis 45 story, the application of this chapter... Is said to be something like this. That you need to forgive like Joseph. You need, to, you need to be a forgiving man or woman like Joseph. Now, I want to I say this carefully. Okay, We should forgive those who have sinned against us. We should. The Bible is clear on that. That we should give other, forgive others 
as our heavenly Father has forgiven us. And so that's in the Bible. That is the law of Jesus Christ, that we should be, be a forgiving people, that we should extend the same grace that we have received from God. But I want you to think about this question this morning. Who are we more like in this story? Is it the messianic type, Joseph, the exalted ruler of Egypt, the one who has been wronged and sinned against? Is that us? Or are we more like the guilty brothers in this story who stand powerless and guilty and in need of forgiveness? And that's, that's exactly where I believe that Genesis 45 takes us. Joseph is the picture of the exalted ruler, Jesus Christ. And I want us to, I want us to meditate on, the, on this this morning. The fact is, and we can guarantee very few things, okay, that will be true of every single person in this room. But this is true of everybody, okay? Just a matter of time. That every single one of us will stand in a position similar to the brothers of Joseph in Genesis 45. You say, what do you mean? We will stand before the exalted ruler. Except we will not stand before the exalted ruler merely of the land of Egypt. We will stand before the ruler of heaven and earth, the Lord Jesus Christ. And even more than that, we will stand before this Jesus as having been guilty of sinning against him. Just like these brothers were guilty of sinning against Joseph. And so I want your mind to go there this morning. It's only a matter of time before we stand before the exalted one that we have personally sinned Against. And I want to make sure we're really clear here. Okay? We have beautiful truth about Jesus Christ that He has revealed to us in His incarnation as the baby in the manger. And in His incarnation, He takes on this form of a servant, this humble servant of the Lord. He comes as the carpenter's son. Of Nazareth, But I want you to remember this morning that when we see Him, when we stand before Him and give an account for our sins, we're not going to stand before Jesus in His humiliation. We're not standing before Jesus in His humiliation. We will stand before Christ in His glory. In His glory. Not the baby in the manger. Not the carpenter from Nazareth, but the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth. And these brothers were made to tremble with three words from the mouth of Joseph. I am Joseph. And all of a sudden, their sin comes rushing to the front of their conscience. They have no idea what they're about to do. They're completely at the mercy of Joseph in this text. The brothers here, I am Joseph, whom you sold. Something similar is coming in your life. 
Something similar is coming in your life. In fact, we have a close parallel to Genesis 45. In Acts chapter 9, we read about the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. This man is on the way to bind and kill Christians. Until this holy, unexpected moment, he hears these words booming from heaven. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Whom you are persecuting. And these are shadows and pictures of the final judgment. This is just a little piece of what that final judgment is going to be like. Where every human being stands before the ruler. And with a conscience going off like a tornado siren. You realize this is Jesus. The one whom I sinned against. Revelation chapter 21. It begins to describe... This moment where all humanity is gathered before King Jesus as He sits on the throne. The great white throne. We're told in Revelation 21, listen, heaven and earth flee away from His face. This is how much authority will be revealed in that moment that heaven, the sky, and earth itself will want to peel away from the revelation of the majesty and the might and the authority of Jesus Christ. And yet, Scripture tells us that we will be there. That we will be gathered before Him. All of creation will want to peel away from Him We will stand before Him and books will be opened. And another book will be opened. That is the book of life. And the dead will be judged according to what is written in the books. There's coming a moment. Every one of us are going to experience something like this except infinitely greater. We will stand before the exalted ruler whom we have sinned against. And I want to prepare you for that day. And this text this morning, it reminds us that there is mercy to be had in Jesus Christ before that day. That you can find mercy in the sight of this exalted ruler. That the one who will judge every human being is known to us right now as the King of Grace. And the King of mercy. And there is mercy to be found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is what the brothers found before this exalted king, this exalted ruler. The one who could have crushed them, embraced them. Full reconciliation. Lavished, tender kindness from God. This is the grace of God. And I want you to see it this morning. I want you to notice not only that Joseph was sent in this passage, and not only that he was sent to save in this passage, I want you to notice whom Joseph was sent for in this passage. And it says it several times. 
the drum beats of the grace of God. Verse 5, Joseph tells his brothers, he says, God sent me before you. Before you. He says the same thing in verse 7. He says, God sent me before you. I was sent here before you. And then look at what he says in verse 7 twice. To preserve for you a remnant. Verse 7 again. To keep alive for you many survivors. And so I want you to notice in this text that the you in this text is the wicked brothers. The wicked ones. Joseph was sent for the wicked ones, for the you. I don't want you to miss this, okay? Joseph was sent for the ones who sold him. For you, the ones who sold him into Egypt. That's why he was sent. He wasn't sent for the righteous ones who never sinned. He was sent for the ones who were guilty of selling him into slavery. Is that beautiful this morning? That is beautiful grace from God. Joseph says, God sent me for you. God sent me for you. This is mind-blowing stuff. Verse 5. You sold me. God sent me. We're talking about the very same action of the selling of Joseph into slavery. And with these words, we realize that in the very same act of the brothers selling Joseph as slave, God was acting to save the slave traders. I'll say that one more time. I want you to see it. In the very act of them selling their brother as a slave, God is acting to save the slave traders. This is the amazing grace of God. It's for sinners. That's what makes God's grace so amazing is it's for sinners. Not for the righteous, it's for us. The ones who have sinned against King Jesus. This is mind-blowing stuff. This text takes it way past, you know, a lot, a lot of bad stuff. You know, you've done a lot of bad stuff in your life, but God can wipe it clean. It says more than that. It says that God can use your sin to bring about salvation. And that's a sovereign God. We're on a whole different level that this God can make even the wrath of man to praise him. He can make human sin bow down to him and become his servant. That's amazing. That is amazing. You sold me. God sent me. God sent me here for you is what he tells these sinful brothers. This is the same way salvation works all across Scripture. This is what we see as we zone in on the cross of Jesus Christ. That the very same act, the very same act considered from one angle is an act of human sin and rebellion. And yet from the other angle, it's an act of the God of salvation. And we see this clearer than anywhere else at the cross of Jesus. The cross of Jesus. We meant it for evil and God meant it 
for good. Listen to Acts chapter 2, verse 23. It says, This Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. You see that? At the cross we have guilt and human responsibility. And yet we have divine sovereignty working salvation through the very same act. The crucifixion of Jesus is the most wicked sin that has ever been committed in the history of all of humanity. The sinless, perfect, beloved Son of God was butchered and hammered to the tree by sinners. And God says that was His plan. God sent Him there for salvation. His crucifixion was an act of human sin. And yet at the same time, it was an act of God's salvation. And this is what Joseph is wanting his brothers to consider. Yes, you sin. Yes, you're guilty. But look at the grace of God in the midst of human sin. And I want to call us to do that together this morning as the church of Jesus, that we would behold the full and final manifestation of human sin being overruled by the goodness of God. The cross of Jesus Christ. We meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And that means that as we head towards this day of standing before the exalted Lord Jesus, that there's mercy to be found. There's mercy to be had in Jesus Christ because of the cross. Because of the cross. Because there's one who came to take our place. To take our punishment. It's in that holy moment that our sin can be overruled by the power, goodness, and grace of God. And I want us to behold Jesus together this morning. The true and better Joseph. Joseph was sent to deliver and save his sinful brothers. And I want to remind you that Jesus was sent to save sinners. He wasn't sent for righteous men and women who got everything prettied up and don't think that they need salvation. He was sent for sinners. He was sent for sinners. The guilty, the filthy before God. And I want you to be encouraged by this this morning. That as wicked as the sin of Joseph's brothers was, trafficking their little brother into slavery, it wasn't enough to thwart God's plan of salvation. Their sin was great, but the mercy of God was more. Their sin was great, but the grace of God is more. And that's the gospel call this morning. That there is abundant mercy. That there is sufficient mercy to be found for every sinner who repents of their sin. Listen to this phrase in Romans chapter 5. Beautiful reminder to a bunch of sinners this morning. Romans 5.20, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. That's a beautiful truth in the Word of God. And I want you to understand, these things are both true, but they're not equal truth. Okay, Your sin abounds, but the grace of Jesus abounds all the more. I want you to know this, 
that there's more power to save in Jesus than there is sin in you. They're, they're, they're true, but they're not equal truths. His grace can swallow up our sin, cancel it, and overrule it. And what we meant for evil, He can work it for good. You sinned against God. Every person in this room. But God sent Jesus. This is the same thing that Joseph leans in and tells his brothers. Don't be distressed. Don't be angry. God sent me is what Joseph said. If you're convicted of your sin, don't be overwhelmed. Don't, don't drag your conviction into eternity. God sent Jesus. It's not the only thing that's true is that you're a sinner. Christ came. Christ died. Come to Jesus. Be reconciled to God. Free offer of the gospel. He won't turn away anyone who repents of their sin. No one will be turned away. Tender mercy from King Jesus. And I want you to know that this morning. That if you refuse to come to Christ today... Let it be because you hate Jesus. Don't let it be because you believe wrongly that your sin is too much for Him. It's not. His mercy is greater than your sin. His grace can swallow up 10,000 worlds of human sin. Come to Christ. Find mercy for the day of judgment. So many of us in this room, all across this room, we have come to Jesus. We come to Christ. We have found mercy. And I want to remind my brothers and sisters today from this text that Jesus is tender towards you. He's tender. He has all authority in heaven and earth, but He has a tenderness towards His people. He has provided us with a full reconciliation from sin. In other words, when we're forgiven by Jesus, He doesn't send us to dwell in the outside of the family. He brings us near to Him. And so I want you to see this in Joseph. Exalted Joseph, Lord of Egypt, was not ashamed to be identified with his sinful brothers. They have no power. They have no claim upon Him. And yet, He forgives them. And he leans in and he encourages them. And Joseph lavishes provisions upon them. The text tells us that he embraces them and that he weeps with them and that he even kisses his brothers. He is not ashamed to be identified with slave traders, human traffickers. And I want to remind us that Jesus is even more so he is not ashamed to be identified with his sinful people. Hebrews 2 verse 11. He is not ashamed to call them brothers. That's a beautiful truth from the word of God. That when Jesus looks at his family tree and all of those who have been united to him through the gospel, he is categorically different than every single one of us. He looks at himself and there is no sin. He's been tempted in every way that we are, and yet He has conquered every single time. He is the solitary, unique, righteous one. And He looks at all His brothers and sisters. And all He sees are sinners. Those who have fallen short of the glory of God. 
And yet the reconciling grace of God reminds us that even though that gap is there, righteous Jesus, sinful us, he is not ashamed to be called their brother. Jesus is tender to his people. And so I want to give you a closing exhortation, my brothers and sisters in Christ, that you would be careful that you don't live the Christian life more aware of your sin than you are of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. So I want you to see that. Joseph leans in to his guilty brothers and he says, yeah, you sold me. And you need to know that. Yes, you have sinned against God. But I want you to be careful that you're not passing through this world more aware of the sin that you bring to the table than the boundless, infinite grace of God that you have received in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves. God has sent the Savior. Our sins have been swallowed up by the mercy of God. Robert Murray McChain, he famously exhorted that for every look that we take towards ourselves, we would take ten looks to Jesus Christ. And I want to leave you with that this morning. That as we look at ourselves, as we look within, all we see is sin. All we see is that falling short of the glory of God. We still don't love Him like we should. And McChain reminds us, yeah, that's true. You bring sin to the table. But for every look that you gaze within, you better gaze without ten times more to the grace of God and Jesus Christ. Behold your salvation in the perfect work of Jesus Christ. And this means that the Christian life, there's a place for mourning our sin in the Christian life. But ten times more, let us be those who exalt the reconciling, redeeming, transforming, forgiving grace of God in Jesus Christ. Jesus says in John 15, verse 15, that those who have been reconciled into this family, he no longer calls us servants, but he calls us his friends. His friends. Tender mercy. From the one with all authority at the right hand of God. Let's pray. Lord, we lift up our souls to you this morning. God, we ask that you would call, cause the word of Christ, your glorious gospel, to dwell richly within us today, Lord. Every one of us, God, are prone to discouragement. God, we pray that you would give us mighty glimpses of our Savior who loves us. Lord, make us a gospel church even more so. Help us never to depart. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.